We're ending a series today called Adulting. Before we jump into what we're going to talk about this morning, I need you to uh, say thank you to some really important leaders in our church. Uh, today, it, this week ends the last week of our life groups. What happens is our life groups, are, uh, they run in semesters, so they go in three 10-block periods, and so it's an easy on-ramp to join a group, and then if 10 weeks later you go, oh, these people are weird, uh, you can get out after 10 weeks, and we did that, on, it's on purpose, and we use the, 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 uh, the message as the material for your conversation, just to jumpstart the conversation. And those groups are led by our life group leaders. And so the semester's ending today. They'll, if you're in a life group, hopefully you'll do some stuff over the summer, you know, get together at the beach, that kind of thing. And then you can join a life group in the fall. I really hope you, if, if you just show up here on Sunday and you think this is going to connect you to the church, I promise you'll just show up for a, a little while, and then you go, I just didn't get connected. But if you get into a life group, you get into the, the life of the church, the family of God, you build relationships, you'll stick, you'll stay in any church, including this one. So I, I want to say thank you to our life group leaders. They are our most important leaders in our church. Can you stand if you're a life group leader? Some of you are in here. Yeah. You guys are awesome. They are they're the most important leaders in our church, and, and the rest of your leaders, we love you. We like you a lot. They're the most important. So if you want to be the most important leader, be a life group leader. Uh, okay. Pentecost Sunday is today. Pentecost is 50 days, uh, Penta, 50, and the church around the world is celebrating the birth of the church. The, the, the day of Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter one and two, and it was the, the, uh, the giving of God's spirit to God's people for God's mission in the world. And so we celebrate that today, and we're going to end with communion doing that. Uh, but Pentecost is all about the, the church and the Holy Spirit. So I want to uh, do my best through the power of God's spirit to kind of try to do today what the Holy Spirit does in your life and in my life. And what the Holy Spirit does in our life, this is a modern paraphrase, so bear with me, give me a little bit of grace as I say this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is kind of like a life coach. Now, I'm not saying something heretical for those of you who are like, wait, what? Uh, a li- if, if you've ever had someone who's a coach to you in your life, they tell you what you're messing up, and they tell you what you can do better, and they, they push you in the right direction. So I want to attempt to, uh, to, in the power of God's Spirit, kind of be a life coach for you in this last message of the series. And I want to talk to you about one key skill that you need to have if you're going to succeed on the adulting journey, wherever you are on that path, beginning it way further down the road. Um, I'm, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I uh, love the books way better than the movies. Loved them before the movies came out. But if you know that story, you know it's about a ring, a ring of power. And there's this phrase in the, in the, the, the story about there's one ring that will rule them all. And uh, so this is kind of, um, this is a play on that. The mess, title of the message today is One Skill to Rule Them All. And uh, the skill that you're going to need to rule them all, and it's not going to sound all kinds of spicy to you, uh, is that you need to learn to make good decisions. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to learn to make better decisions today. So here's what we're going to do, okay? I'll give you a roadmap, and then we're going to jump into this. So uh, we're going to diagnose first where you are. We're going to learn what that skill entails, 
And then uh, we're going to apply it to three areas of life, because this is a skill you need to apply to all areas of life. We're going to apply it to three areas of life, okay? Can we do that? I want to invite you to stand with me. We read from the scriptures each week. I'll be reading from the, the letter of 1 John. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Well, I want to give you, uh, just as we kind of step into uh, life coaching you on this one skill to rule them all, uh, two diagnostic tools to help you move forward. Uh, you cannot correct a problem unless you can diagnose a problem. Uh, you cannot uh, work on your issues if you don't know what your issues are. Th- this is kind of like when you go into the mall and you go into a mall that you've never been to before. And you know when you walk in any door, any mall that is still open, uh, you walk in and there's this map. And on that map is a little dot, and you know what that dot says. It says what? It says you are here. So you have to locate where you are. You need to know where you are. And in two key areas, if you're going to be able to make good decisions, if you don't know where you are in these two key areas, you will make terrible decisions horrible decisions with terrible consequences. And so I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Now, these are two tools. Uh, The first tool is a a, a tool. I I got this from a pastor who royally screwed up. Uh, He uh, pastored a church in the New York City area, and uh, he wrote about his whole journey on this. And at one point, his wife came to him and said, you're a terrible leader and a terrible husband, and I'm not going to your church anymore. (laughs) His wife said that to him. She eventually came back, okay? She didn't leave him, but she said, I'm not going to be part of this because you're, you're not healthy. And what he realized, his name was Pete Scazzaro. What he realized, he said, you know, I thought, I had this idea that you could be this spiritual giant and an emotional infant. I thought that would be okay. I didn't think I had to deal with my emotional maturity to be spiritually mature. And he found out that he was wrong. And so he wrote about his journey. There's a book you can read called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So here's the first diagnostic tool. Uh, if you uh, don't, if you aren't aware of this, you're in trouble, and, and it's your emotions. And, and the question that goes along with it is, do you know how uh, emotionally mature you are? I think in your notes it just says mature. Write in the word emotionally right there, would you? Do you know how emotionally mature that you are? Now, I want, I want, to di- I want you to diagnose yourself, okay? And um, this is not meant to make you feel terrible. This is just meant to help you find where you are on the map. Because if you don't have this skill, you're in trouble. And so I'm going to give you what Pete Cesaro gives in his book. He says that we're all kind of like uh, we move from being infants to adults, and we do that emotionally too. So I'm going to give you a bunch of uh, stuff that's going to be on the screen, and, and there's even a scale in your notes, and when we get all the way through this, I want you to 
without your neighbor looking at you, make an X on the little scale and go, this is where I am. This is where I think I am, okay? So you start out as an emotional infant. You know that if you've had babies, they are a handful. But this is kind of characteristic of emotional infants. Um, They look for others to take care of them. They have great difficulty entering into the world of others. They're driven by a need for instant gratification. They use others as objects to meet their needs. A a person who has no idea what's going on emotionally, this is kind of how they act. They're an emotional infant. Or you might be an emotional child. Uh, An emotional child is content and happy as long as they get what they want. But they unravel quickly from stress, disappointment, trial, and trials. Uh, They interpret disagreements as personal offenses. They're easily hurt. They complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, are sarcastic when they don't get their way. It's very hard for an emotional child to calmly discuss their needs and wants in a mature and loving way. Okay? Now, as I'm reading this, you may go, oh my gosh, it's me. Now, remember, this is not, oh my gosh, this is who I'm married to. That's not what we're doing right now. (laughs) We're talking about you, okay? Emotional adolescents, uh, they tend to be defensive. What do you mean? They're threatened and alarmed by criticism. They keep score of what they give so they can ask for something later in return. They deal with conflict poorly, often blaming, appeasing, going to a third party, pouting, or ignoring the issue entirely. They're preoccupied with themselves. It's hard to truly listen to another person's pain, disappointment, and need. They're critical and judgmental. Now, the goal that Pete Scazzaro found, because his wife said, I'm done with this, is that you want to become an emotional adult. This is how he says it works. Able to ask for what they need, want, prefer, directly and honestly. Recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. They can, when they're under stress, state their own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. They can respect others without having to change them. They give people room to make mistakes mistakes and not be perfect. They appreciate people for who they are, good, bad, and ugly, not for what they give back. They can accurately assess their own limits, strengths, weaknesses, and, able to freely, and are able to freely discuss them. They're in tune with their own emotions and are able to enter feelings, needs, and concerns of others without losing themselves. They have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider their perspectives of others. Now, now we're, we're, again, we're, we're life coaching here. If you were to put yourself on that continuum from an emotional infant to an emotional adult... And, and you can mentally do this because I know some of you are like, someone's going to look at my paper and, and know where I'm at. Where would you put yourself? Now, I, I need to tell you, it's okay if you aren't an adult yet. And uh, in fact, in some relationships, you're going to be more mature than you are in others. But seeing where you are helps you see where you need to go. Now, now listen, you just need to be honest about where you are. Because if you don't know where you are, you can't get anywhere else. Okay, that's the first diagnostic tool. Uh, Second diagnostic tool is from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, in his uh, wisdom and understanding about human beings and how we operate, he says that we're we're controlled by one of two things. We we have this idea that we're completely autonomous, that we're able to uh, figure out what we need on our own. And honestly, it's not the truth. We're dominated by whatever we give the most energy to. And so here's the two things that Paul says we can be dominated by or controlled by. We can be dominated by what he calls the flesh, meaning uh, our desires, what I currently want, that's a, a good way to understand the flesh, 
or we can be dominated and give our energy to God's spirit. So here's the second diagnostic tool. It's about the leadership of your life. Do you know what's in control of you? Do you really know what's in control of you? Now, the place that Paul talks about this, maybe the the most clearly, is in Galatians chapter 5, and he paints a picture of what it's like when you're under the control of what you want and your desires, and he contrasts that with what you're like when you're under the control of God's spirit. Now, I'm going to read a portion of it to you. You can look at it later uh, from Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 in the message translation because I think he does, Eugene Peterson does a brilliant job of explaining what this means. But this is, uh, this is how he describes when you're under control of whatever you want. It, this is how Paul says it. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Listen. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grasps for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious, vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. If you are driven by your desires, some version of what is described by Paul right there is a description of what your life is like. And and we're like this. We we have the tendency to try and justify whatever it is we think we need, and we say, well, I deserve this. You know, we can justify uh, messing over someone else. It's okay. They did it. They deserve it. Or we can be controlled by God's spirit. Now, here's the diagnostic tool. Um, it's from Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to put it on the screen. And it's the list of, uh, in the NIV translation, of the, what Paul says are the fruits of God's spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit. Uh, and then on the, the right side is how Eugene Peterson words that. So love. Um, and affection for others. Joy and exuberance about life. Peace. You have serenity. Patience a willingness to stick with things, kindness, a sense of compassion in the heart, goodness, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates people and things, faithfulness, you're involved in loyal commitments, gentleness, not needing to force our way in life. Now, as you diagnose yourself, you have to ask yourself the question, who's more in control of me? Okay, so again, we're locating ourselves on the map. If you don't know, you're in trouble because you'll make terrible decisions. So here's, here's, the, here's the one skill to rule them all, and this is how John says it in his letter. He says that we're to learn to what he calls test the spirits. Can you just say that phrase with me? Test the spirits. And when you test something, um, you're trying to figure out if it's good or if it's not. Let me give you a different word uh, other than test. Uh, you could use the word discern. Um, discern means that you're learning to weigh what's most important. This is the, this is, man, if you could develop this skill of learning in any situation to weigh what's actually most important, your adulting journey will be so much easier. And it's a key part of the adulting journey to learn to discern. And so if, if you don't ever 
learn to weigh what's most important and you're driven by your emotions or you're driven by your desires, then you're never going to figure out what's important and you're always going to have to do what feels right in the moment. And honestly, that's how most of our culture operates. But our feelings, though they are valid feedback, are a terrible way to gauge whether or not you are on the right path because our feelings change on a whim. I mean, I can eat something and I feel totally different five minutes later. The reality is that life is made up of decisions, so learning to make good decisions is a key part of a good life. And so you've got to cut through the clutter, uh, learn to cut through the clutter of decision-making. It's easier when you know what's most important in life. And so John says, don't test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. You, you, um, you weigh it. You figure out what happens. And he says that this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, here's what's going on for John, and we're not kind of privy to this, but there was an idea circulating about Jesus. Uh, it was later labeled, it was called docetism, from a Greek word that means something that appears. And uh, this was an idea people had. They said, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't have an actual body. It just seemed like he did. He, he, he was too perfect, and because he was too perfect, there's no way that he actually had a body and suffered. It just looked like he did. And, and so there was, this idea was being, going around, and, and the outworking of that idea was, because Jesus didn't actually have to suffer for doing what was right, we should not have to have, suffer for doing what's right. It really was selfish. That's what was happening, is people didn't want to have any pain for having to follow Jesus, and so they came up with a convenient way to explain away why Jesus was the way they thought Jesus was. And, and uh, John says, no, 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 those are the people who believe that don't understand what Jesus is like, and you have to test that spirit. Jesus is always, the actual Jesus in a body was the, the test of what is good and what is bad. And, and you have to learn to test the spirits and know what Jesus is like because Jesus is always the standard for the decisions that you make and figuring out what is important in life. So I want to give you uh, three key areas of life where you and I need to learn to test the spirits, to discern, to weigh what is most important. And the three areas are faith, love, and work. Okay? So we're going to take the skill of discerning and apply it to these areas. Now... In faith, um, the, here's the important thing. I'll just give it to you up front. Is the question is, what will, uh, what will make you stay and grow? What will make you stay and grow? If you decide to follow Jesus, that means that you are also part of the church. Now, Americans have this idea, we do, that I can be on my own private little journey, and I don't need other people. That's a very American idea. It is not a Christian idea. Uh, If you follow Jesus, you are part of the church because the church is his family. Jesus is the leader and the church is his family. And so Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And in the upper room, Acts 1 and 2 records, Jesus came, the Holy Spirit came, and Jesus' people received Jesus' mission. They were together because the, the church is the family of God, meaning you were not meant to have a journey of faith that you do by yourself. You need a family and you need people who will go with you on the journey. And listen, you will fail at being a follower of Jesus if you try to do it alone. You will not succeed. It's too hard, frankly. You'll give up. You'll quit. 
Now, we used to have all these movies uh, and television shows that kind of painted our ideals as a culture. I grew up on The Lone Ranger and uh, Tonto. I mean, The Lone Ranger really wasn't alone. He did have Tonto. Um, All of our movies were about a single superhero, uh, Superman, Batman. Uh, They were one guy against everybody, which is kind of the American ideal. Like, I'll by myself will go into my fortress of solitude, and I will find the strength within myself to go out and conquer my life. Our culture understands this doesn't work now because all of our movie heroes are different. Now Now you're in a squad. Now you're with the Avengers, right? You can't do it by yourself. You need everybody. But, but that idea, that understanding that you can't do it, by, it really hasn't sunk in yet. We're still thinking that we can be on our own little journey. Um, and so we think we don't need a family, but you need, you need a family. And, and once you get into a local church like this one, you are, listen, you are always going to have opportunities, like in any family, to get hurt, disappointed, and say, I'm done, I'm leaving. You're going to always have that opportunity. And if you don't know what's important, that's what you'll do. You'll treat your faith as this American personal journey that really means a private journey that no one is allowed to be a part of. And you will think that church, um, and I don't mean just this, I mean the whole relational thing that happens with God's people, you will think this is about your personal preferences. And you will become a religious consumer I routinely, uh, people, and I love that people visit our church and are guests in our church, and we want people to be guests, and we want people to stick and stay, Um, but people will use this phrase. They'll come up and they'll say, oh, I'm new here. Uh, I'm uh, I'm church shopping, (laughs) and and what I'm trying to say, if you're applying this, you know, figuring out what's most important in, in terms of your faith cut that language out of your vocabulary entirely. And if you're ever in a place where you move or you go some other place and, and um, you're, you're looking for a church family, don't use that language. Say, um, I'm an orphan who doesn't, hasn't found a family to belong to yet. The language really matters. Because if you're shopping, it's all about your preferences and what you get out of the arrangement. And you're going to have in the church a thousand opportunities to say, Mm, I didn't really like that. I didn't really like that he said that. It, it happens all the time. Uh, people leave churches. People have left our church. Um, it just happens all the time. But like every family, you will either stay and work through the junk and grow, or you will say, I'm done. And you'll be on your own personal journey by yourself. Uh, see, the church, we're going to take communion in a minute. This is, this is meant to be a symbolic meal. It's meant to be like the dinner table where you come and you pull up a seat and everybody is welcome at the table. And what I love about the church is that everybody from every background, every class, every education level, every income level, every political affiliation comes up and sits around a common table, meaning, here's what communion is meant to communicate, is the church is not about what I like. We're not united by the fact that we all happen to like the same things. We're united by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that we all needed a savior, and we needed somebody to give us a better start, and that's what unites us, not the fact that I happen to like this, and so do you. This is not, this is not what the church is about. So John says, listen, 
You've got to learn to test the spirits. Now, there are people, uh, like I said, who've left our church, and uh, there have been some. I'll give you one example, um, and this is just, a, 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 you know, one example. Um, but some people have left our church over, over politics. Uh, they felt that I wasn't of a certain stripe. I'm, I can think of multiple instances. Uh, they felt like I wasn't of a certain stripe. I'm not a very political person. Uh, my, my politics are the kingdom of God. Whatever Jesus says, I go with that. And they felt like I wasn't on one side of the aisle or, or another enough. And um, they got mad, and they said, I'm, I'm going to leave. Now, listen, in this story, I'm not trying to paint myself as the one who's right, and, and I get it all right, and they get it wrong. I, I'm simply saying, when you say for any reason, you know, I don't, I don't this doesn't fit my personal preferences, so I'm going to leave, what you're weighing as most important is how you feel. And so people have left, and, and uh, listen, we do this all the time with politics. We, we go and we post a meme about the other side, and we say that they're wrong, and everybody who agrees with our politics likes it. Oh, like, 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 like. And everybody who disagrees goes, I'm going to unfriend them. <laughs> now, John says that the world listens to people who have the spirit. See, I can't see Jesus posting a meme on Facebook about how his political views are right and the other side is wrong. Right? Can we agree on that? So the spirit that would say, well, I'm going to align myself with my, my politics over Jesus, even though I'm a follower of Jesus, that's, that's that spirit that John is saying is anti-Christ. And, and John says, that spirit the world listens to. The world listens to divided politics, doesn't it? There are whole TV shows and industries that are built around that exact spirit of antichrist. Now, you, you have to figure out, though, in your faith, what's most important? Um, this, is how, this is how Jesus did it. Jesus is a bridge builder. This is how uh, Paul writes it in Ephesians. He said, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, hostility. So what, what does Jesus do? Jesus brings people together, and if the leader does that, then we are to do that, because that's what's most important to Jesus. So as you apply this, this principle of testing the spirits to your faith, whatever Jesus does is what is most important. So when you get into a local church, if you're part of our local church, and it gets ugly, or you don't like something stay and grow through that. Don't go, well, my, that doesn't fit my personal preferences and I'm going to go find something else. So what will, what will make you stay and what will uh, help you grow? Second thing is love. Um, what, here's the important thing. What will make you stay and learn to love? Now, I want to apply this to one thing, okay? And I understand that some of you are further or in a different place in this journey, but I'm, I'm doing this for anyone who's starting out. And I want to apply it to uh, you figuring out how to pick a spouse. And, and listen, I understand that not everyone gets married. If you are single, you are welcome here. If you've never been married, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, you are welcome here. Marriage is not the end game. You're not somehow not successful if you don't get married. You need to hear that. That's not the ultimate relationship in life. The ultimate relationship in life is with Jesus. But I want to make an argument for lifelong marriage, okay? And I've got three 
when you apply the, the important things to this and you discern and you test the spirits on love, I, I hope you can understand these three decisions that if you want to have a lifelong marriage when you pick a partner um, or if you're in the middle of it and you're like, I think I'm going to leave, you need to make these three deci- decisions, okay? Number one is this, that love cannot be a feeling. Love, love cannot be a feeling. Um, we think that love is something that requires a feeling. It's not. We think that love starts with a feeling. It does. But the kind of love that God has for us is not a love that requires a feeling. A feeling comes after the fact. I have found that when I do things sacrificially for my kids or for my wife, that my feelings change. My feelings follow my actions. So you have to make the decision that love cannot be a feeling because feelings come and go. You're going to be in love with the person you married. Guess what's going to happen if you stay married to them long enough? You're going to fall out of love with them. Can I get an amen from the people who've been married a while? Right? Right? You're like, who is this person? What is wrong with them? And if you... <laughs> and if you make that your barometer, you're never going to last. Feelings come and feelings go. Learning to love a commitment, you have to say love is not a, I'm not doing this for the feeling. It's nice that I get the feeling, but I'm not doing it for that. Because that's the first decision you have to make. Second is, you have to make a decision that you're going to stick it out and that you're not going to leave and that you're going to make it work and that divorce becomes a curse word that you don't say in your house. If you're struggling and you're ready to give up, go home and look at each other and say, we're not going to say the D word anymore in this house. And when you make that fundamental decision, man, it gets a lot easier. Because <laughs> you go, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to figure this out. I, don't, I may kill you, but I'm going to stay married to you, right? <laughs> Second thing, the third thing, this might be the most important, okay? You have to learn to love your spouse like you love your kids. Now, I learned this from Tim Keller, but here's what, here's what, here's what happens. It's very, very common. Uh, a couple gets married, they have a few kids, and uh, they leave each other, and then they have to sort out what to do with the kids, very, very common thing that happens. Now, why, why is it that the parents both still love the kids, usually, but they don't love each other? Now, why, have you ever thought about that? Why, why does it happen? Like the, 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 the dad, now I know in some scenarios this is not the case, but in an ideal case, the dad still loves his kids even though he may not love the former wife, and the, the mom still loves her kids even though she doesn't love the former husband. Why, why is that? Well, let me, let me just suggest something to you. You look at your kids and you say, you know what, it is my job to love them. What direction is the love going from? It's going from you to them. Now, with your spouse, this is where, this is where you get in trouble, okay? This is where you go, ah, I, I. you look at your spouse and you say, it is their job to love me. Which way is the love flowing? And then when it comes that you don't feel that anymore, you go, well, I must not love them anymore. And so, so, you, so with kids, you love them when they aren't, listen, you know this as parents, you love them even when they don't do anything for you, and you know if you raise a child from zero to 18 that it costs you an incredible amount, and you rarely, you'll have moments that they look at you and they smile and you go, it's all worth it. Uh, but you have so many other moments 
When you're like, oh, this kid, but you don't give up on them when it gets hard. You go, it's my job to love them no matter what. It's my job to love them. And you, you have, selflessness is required to be a good parent. I mean, it's just absolutely a necessary ingredient. So here's what I'm saying. If you want to have a marriage that lasts, you have to look at your spouse the same way you look at your kids and say, my job, and it's not their job to love me, it is my job to love them for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. So the important thing has to be, what is it that will make me stay and love? Do that, apply that skill of making a good decision, and you will have a happy marriage. Okay, work. Uh, what's, we're going to do this really quick, and then we're going to receive communion. What will make you stay and serve? You're trying to, again, you're trying to figure out what's most important. Um, you, you've got two options when it comes to work. Um, um, you can do what you love, and, and you may be in a position where you are able to do exactly what you love. You went to school for it, you trained for it, you do it every day, and you think this is the greatest thing, I love what I'm doing, I, I love that I got the opportunity to do this, and, and, and maybe you went to college to do that, maybe you went through the trades to do that, I don't know how you went and did that, but you, you get to do what you love. And not everybody gets to do that, though. You may be in the position where uh, you, instead of doing what you love, you do what you do for the people that you love. And either way, here's what I want to suggest to you, is you have to figure out in your work, your work is a way that you can serve people. So you can go to your work, whether or not you're doing it because you love it, or you're doing it for who you love, and the fact that you get to provide a life for them, and yes, it's hard every day, and you don't really love the work, but man, you put in the time and you make it work. Um, you provide for them, and you're lifting your kids beyond you, and you have, you have a great attitude, you have a servant attitude, and you think when you go to work every day, now, I am here to make life better for the people around me, including the people I work with, and you develop a servant attitude and it changes everything about the way that you work. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that will make me stay and serve? What is it that will make me stay and serve? Well, we're gonna receive the elements of the Lord's Supper together as we end this series. And um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he was with his disciples. He took it and he broke it and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And then he took a cup, and when you come, you can dip this in the, the juice. And he lifted it up and he said, this represents my blood that was shed for you. And as you, as you come forward, I want you to remember that you have been invited to the Lord's table. You are part of God's family. We practice an open table. There are some um, traditions where they say if you're not one of us you can't receive the elements of the Lord's Supper we practice an open table in our church and we say that anyone is welcome and that any moment you can come and receive these elements and join God's family if you're not a part of God's family and you don't have faith and you are an emotional infant and you're making terrible decisions and you just need some help listen Jesus is for you God's family is for you. We'll help you take a next step and move into a better place in your life. So I'm gonna pray for you and um, then I'll invite you to stand with me if you would as we pray. And uh, we'll play and then you can just come down receive the elements of um, the Lord's Supper and then you are dismissed, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. 
Thank you that you offered your body on the cross for us. And thank you that you didn't ask us to take a private journey in our own hearts, by ourselves, all alone, and somehow try and figure out life with you as a kind of quasi-resource. Instead, you put us in a family, the church. And so thank you that first we belong to you, and then we belong to your people, and we're in this together. And we want to learn to be wise people who make discerning decisions and figure out what's important. And uh, we're all over the map on that journey. Some of us have a really long way to go. Thank you that you come to where we are and you help us take the step forward that we need. And so we thank you for your broken body and shed blood on our behalf, your table that invites us to be together. We say thank you for this and we receive these elements with gratefulness and with thanks. We pray this in your name. Amen. Come forward and you're dismissed.